meeting nurses who can demonstrate a bit of courage and creativity within nursing. That's what keeps me in the profession. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marion Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a pen nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. On this episode of Amplify Nursing, we talk to Matt Doma, a clinical nurse educator and resuscitation science expert working for Alberta Health Services in Canada. Today, we talk to Matt about his early career challenges in nursing, his passion for research, and the importance of ethical considerations when performing resuscitation research. So Matt, I am so excited to be talking to you for the Amplify Nursing podcast because we have known each other in a different way um, for a bunch of years now. So I was a resuscitation science researcher for over a decade, and that's where I met you first. And so to be able to have you on the podcast and talk about your work in resuscitation science and all the other cool stuff you're doing is really getting me excited for this interview. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be able to speak with you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So um, we'll get into it in a little bit, but first I want to hear about your path to nursing. This is sort of the question we ask all of our guests to tell us about your path to nursing. Yeah, uh, definitely. I wasn't a great student in high school. I definitely wasn't a great student. I had trouble focusing and paying attention. I definitely didn't do homework. Really around junior high is where I really started to struggle with even completing any assignments or even attending. And I ended up uh, going to a boarding school um, where I was much more structure and a lot more supervision. And um, yeah, they taught me how to study. So that was Brentwood College on Vancouver Island on the West Coast of British Columbia, a very picturesque, a very beautiful place. There was like mandatory supervised studying. And, you know, they sat me down as a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old and taught me how to take notes. You know, I learned critical thinking and, yeah, I really owe part of my success to them. And while I was there to try to burn off the extra energy and try to be able to focus, I did a lot of athletics. In a school like that, it's rugby and rowing uh, or crew in the States. And uh, those early morning practices... Uh, and sometimes even two-a-day practices really helped me burn off the extra energy so I was capable of focusing. Uh, I left school, uh, that I left that high school with, again, just sort of mediocre grades, just like high C's and the occasional B. And like many of my peers who had much better grades, I wanted to join a helping profession. So I thought, oh, I'll become a psychologist or, or, or I'll be a physician. And I graduated from high school and I went home and I had to work uh, right away. Uh, We joked that for my 17th birthday, my parents gave me a pair of work boots. So I started working in construction and I took some occupational first aid certificates and I became a workplace first aider. And I started volunteering for the local ski patrol 
and I took some lifeguarding courses, I did some lifeguarding, and I did some volunteer search and rescue as a medic uh, as well. After a couple of years of doing that, I um, about two and a half years, I struggled to get into a nursing program. It was really tough. My grades weren't really high enough. I did lots of applying to all the programs in, in my area in southwestern uh, British Columbia, north, north of Seattle. And um, yeah, I, I didn't get in for years. I did all the interviewing and I did some upgrading of uh, like some English and some math courses that my grades were too low in, in high school. And um, I ended up going to the first uh, university college that let me in, this little community college called University College Fraser Valley. And uh, yeah, I started, uh, I, st I started classes there and I continued to struggle uh, with my grades. Couldn't for the life of me manage to write anything in APA. Uh, I spent my first year just sort of teetering on failure. And again, I, I found they had a rowing program, a little crew program, and it allowed me to start training again. And that really, really helped my focus. I find it really fascinating, the connection between athletics and um, being able to really heighten your senses for studying and homework and how much those can really go together to help move along in a educational program. And I think your story is a really good one in that it's not a straight path for everyone into any profession, including nursing. And sometimes it takes a while and it takes some struggle and some potential failure. And then, you know, eventually you'll get to a place where it can happen. And it's about persistence and believing in yourself and figuring out ways to help yourself. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's really a great point. This figuring out how to help yourself. I left high school wanted doing helping profession. Didn't have the grades for medicine. I saw the way that paramedics were working. I thought I'd be a paramedic for a while, but a lot of the, the paramedic programs in my area, they're hard to get into. And I saw most of the medics uh, waiting in the hallways of emergency departments. And I didn't really want to do that. And I had to really get over the self-consciousness I had being a young man and declaring that I wanted to be a nurse. That was, a, that was a huge barrier for me. I'd always be like, uh, like I would treat nursing as potentially a stepping stone. And I needed to, I needed to do this athletics or exercise to be able to focus. And I needed to reframe nursing in my mind. So it felt more socially acceptable. So yeah. let's talk about that for a second, because nursing does definitely have a gender norm perception problem. And so what was your perception of the profession of nursing before you started in the program and how has that evolved? Oh, man, great question. I think as a young man, I would probably anchor to the media portrayals and the stereotypes of nurses, predominantly women, um, as a sort of a subservient or helping job yeah and I, I didn't see many people who looked like me or who I thought who were like me in nursing I had an aunt uh, an aunt who was a nurse and she worked in neonatal intensive care so I knew that she had a, 
a job that had some features that attracted me, a technical job with a specialized body of knowledge, uh, taking care of patients that were very vulnerable and needed her sort of continuous care. That helped. And then I, I had a family member become ill, uh, injured in a motor vehicle collision, and they were on a surgical trauma ICU. And when I was visiting him, I got to see men in nursing. And actually, not just men, I got to see young women and men, and men and women and uh, people who seem much more accessible, like real people, people that I could be like. Um, and that sort of helped me reframe it. But I worry that if I didn't have that experience, nursing would have continued to be this very sort of unidimensional profession. I know a lot of male nurses who work in emergency medicine and critical care. Do you think that was one of the reasons you ended up in emergency medicine? I mean, I know you were doing ski patrol, which I think is super cool. And some of the other pre-hospital emergency medicine stuff, but I'm wondering why you chose emergency medicine and if that had anything to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I didn't feel as maybe welcome or that my, my personal attributes, what I bring to nursing would be as well utilized in, um, in long-term care or in uh, medicine and surgical nursing or home care, community health, they weren't really my, I didn't, didn't feel as much of a fit, but the highly technical skill-based, uh, differently paced nursing did feel like a better fit. And I guess that, that might be a bit gendered, but those were the specialties that I was attracted to and that I felt whatever attributes I had would be the best fit for. So let's talk a little bit about then now that you're in nursing, you've been in nursing for a, while, a little while now, what has it been like going from, you know, really struggling to get into nursing school to what I would say is a pretty successful career in nursing as an educator and a researcher. So can you talk us through a little bit about what that has looked like for you over the years and you know what you're doing now. Yeah, thank you for asking. It's I have been a registered nurse for 15 years and my career has been spread over emergency nursing, critical care nursing, a bit of cardiovascular care in a cardiac ICU, grad school where I got introduced to grad school allowed me to transition from purely practicing sort of resuscitation uh, to actually studying it. And now I, I get to be sort of on, on the cusp of really transitioning to now a clinician scientist role. The last eight years, I was a clinical nurse educator in an emergency department. And I love that. That allowed me to feel like I was making a difference to the patients that came to our emergency department by providing education and training to, to our nurses. But now, and I really do, I credit grad school. I think that I didn't really enjoy my undergraduate uh, nursing that much. I kind of left that wondering if I should be a social worker instead or if I should go to law school. Yeah, backing up a bit, I, I was really fortunate. I was able to do an, an internship with UNICEF in Vietnam after my undergraduate degree, and it was in uh, child protection. 
So and let's was... talk about this for a second. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, because I find that also interesting. I want to understand more about what it was in the undergrad program that didn't quite sit right with you. Hmm. So let's talk about that first, but then I definitely want to hear more about <laughs> the work you did with UNICEF. Now, my undergraduate program wasn't a very good fit for me, uh, or I didn't fit it, potentially. They really wanted us to give up everything else in our life to like just focus on nursing school. They're like, nursing school is so hard. It's going to take so much of your time. You need to be 100% committed. They discouraged us from working outside of the program, which for many of us, it wasn't feasible to not work. And they discouraged a set of extracurricular activities that could take you away from being fully awake and present for your clinical rotations and, and things like this. And it took me to being in my mid thirties to discover that, uh, that my extracurriculars are what keep me well, and they help me be a great nurse. And if you take those away from me, I, I suffer. I'm a wilting flower and I, um, I, I'm not any good to my patients or myself or, or my interpersonal relationships. I think uh, this is a point that really needs to be stressed for any nursing educator, administrator who's listening to this podcast, because I've heard that from other students and I, I've experienced it when I was an undergrad um, in nursing school that you have to sort of give up your whole entire life. You can't do anything else. You have to focus on nursing school 100% of your time. And that is not a good mentality. And that I think is the mentality that leads into the academic mindset of, you know, working yourself to death as well. And we need to really, as a profession, focus on work-life balance, on school life balance, and understanding that for some people, for probably most people, having these extracurriculars, having these hobbies, having these ways to de-stress actually makes you a better person, which in turn makes you a better student, which in turn makes you a better nurse. Uh, I could have said it better. This is exactly my sentiment. And it took me a long time to learn this. I, I was slow to gain the insight of this. I spent my first few years in the emergency department quickly working towards a burnout because I didn't leave my, my training really well connected. You know, I kind of fell back into the habit of giving up my extracurriculars, giving up my self-care because this is my job and I'm only going to do it and I'm going to be the best at it. And that's sort of when I stopped any sort of sport or training regularly or doing any of the things that made me successful in the past. Yeah, I feel like you and I are of the same age range mm -hmm. um, and sort of similar paths. And I definitely had to learn this the older I've gotten as well, that I really also need my like yoga and biking and downtime and that's okay. And work never ends. School yes. never ends. Clearly yeah. we're going to get into that. <laughs> so in order to stay well, mentally, physically, spiritually, holistically, you have to have these other components. Yeah. So let's talk about the work you did then with UNICEF, because that sounds really cool. And how did that experience or did that experience help you see what you gained in the nursing program that maybe you hadn't at graduation? Oh, yeah, that's great. My acute care rotations 
in my undergraduate degree in nursing were in the end of my second year and the beginning of my third year. So I got into hospitals. I got to see sort of the higher pace. I struggled with time management and organization. But I, I liked that. I liked, I liked being a hospital nurse. I liked the acuity of it to the action and the pace. And I felt drawn to it. Then after that, after mid-third year, it went into community health, public health, community mental health, these sorts of, of rotations. And again, I stopped seeing myself in it. And the program had a tough time holding my attention. But in a community mental health rotation, I started to see um, and interact with uh, vulnerable people with persistent mental illness and dual diagnosis in the community that I was working in. And I really felt drawn to trying to make a difference. There's a bit about that rotation that felt a bit voyeuristic to me as a student. I would come, I would watch people uh, experiencing uh, their mental illness and their substance use disorders. But I didn't feel like I was doing very much. So I went back to my, my faculty, uh, little faculty of nursing, and I said, I have read papers and I have an idea. I want to ask people who are using these emergency shelters about how they manage their chronic illness. Because we believe they have a large burden of chronic illness, but if they don't have a home, I really couldn't wrap my mind around, how do they take care of themselves? What does self-care look like when you're unhoused? So my faculty didn't have, they had very, very few people with graduate degrees, maybe just one or two, no one who was doctorally prepared. So they kindly and politely said no. Um, they don't do research in their program. They train clinical nurses. Um, and eventually, uh, I can be a little bit rebellious and oppositional, maybe. So when they told me no, I doubled down on wanting to do this. Matt, I would have never guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, um, and they also think they very much, I think they told me as an undergraduate student, it wouldn't really be appropriate for me to do research. So I found my way to the social work department and... I found a mentor and a research leader, uh, Adrian Chan, uh, Dr. Adrian Chan. And she, I had, I just had a completely different experience. I went to my nursing program and most things I asked, they said no. And uh, Adrian said, yes, yes to many things. She was like, yes, you want to do an exploratory description of chronic illness management amongst adult emergency shelter users. Yeah, we can do that. Have you ever done any interviewing before? I said, no. She taught me how to do interviewing. She helped me develop a survey. Um, I made a great relationship with the Salvation Army Men's Shelter. And I was supported, you know, and encouraged to do this on my time off. And I loved it. I loved developing a question and then determining which methods uh, and what sort of study design was best suited for answering that question. I just still think it's the coolest thing ever. I couldn't agree more that it is the coolest thing ever. What is making me sad from this story is that nursing was constantly saying no to you. What? I don't, I don't even know what to say there, except that what a great way to disincentivize students around the profession of nursing by discouraging them from the work that they want to do, even as undergrads. I mean, I teach and work with so many incredible undergrad nursing students who are brilliant and 
it would, it would never occur to me to say no to them if they came to me and asked to do research. How did, I'm, I guess I'm trying to understand, like, if they kept saying no to you, what was it, what made you go to social work? Great question. Within the department I was in, the department was shared between, I think it was like health and human services. I think there was kinesiology, social work, uh, dental hygienist program, and nursing. And sort of within that sort of larger department, it was easier for me to sort of transfer over or look elsewhere. And I, there was a faculty member within nursing who suggested that I, that I reach out to social work because they had some PhD prepared social workers. Uh, I don't know for sure what happened, but I think that the, many of the members of the faculty, um, this was a, a small suburban community college, and they really had a directive and a mission, I think, to train highly skilled, technically competent clinical nurses. And I think many of the faculty maybe didn't have great academic mentors or they didn't have anyone in their lives that made research accessible to them. And I wonder if they didn't have, you know, anyone to sort of mentor innovation, quality improvement, evaluation, and research. Um, so they themselves were turned off by it and maybe didn't feel prepared, or they were living under that old paradigm that only doctorally prepared nurses could do research. Maybe that's how that happened. Hi. We hope you're enjoying this episode, and we'll be back with more in a few minutes after this quick break. Soothing Sense supports the Amplify Nursing podcast. Nurses are busier than ever, with even more pressure to create positive perceptions of care while keeping risks low. Queeze Ease by Soothing Sense was designed to do just that. Created by a nurse anesthetist, Queeze Ease is an innovative aromatherapy intervention that helps manage patient nausea and discomfort without IVs or a physician's order. It's entirely drug-free and non-drowsy, it smells great, and it comes in a groundbreaking inhaler system that patients can use all by themselves whenever needed. Request your sample kit today at soothing-sense.com medical. Well, I'm glad you did not give up because... <laughs> I want to hear all about the research work that you're doing now and what led you to that. Cause you were doing some really cool resuscitation science research when um, I was still doing resuscitation science work. So can you talk a little bit about what you were doing and where that led you and what you're focusing on now in your doctoral program? Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. I, Maybe after five or six years of practice as an emergency nurse, I wanted something else. I tried a little ICU and then I thought I would go to graduate school. And I was really fortunate that I had one really strong semester in, uh, in undergrad that, uh, and I must've interviewed well, cause I got into a really great program. Uh, one of our country's uh, best nursing programs, uh, University of Toronto and they had these collaborative programs where you could do a master's of nursing, but at the same time, you could study in another faculty or another program. And the emergency medicine program there had a collaborative specialization in resuscitation science where there's some, you know, world leaders in, in recess science. So the first thing that I, I did, uh, I applied, was accepted, 
And then I found a local mentor by the name of Peter Brinley, an intensivist. And because the program was done by distance, but they would help me find a mentor in my community where I live now in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And we started off with just writing a, uh, a case report of uh, just an interesting case that I uh, came across. I was a, you know, a, a bystander to a, a man who was traumatically injured uh, with gunshot wounds. And I tried a, a hemorrhage control technique that's used in postpartum hemorrhage management called external aortic compression. This man in this case that we published, he was shot through um, uh, internal, an iliac artery and an inferior vena cava. He had life-threatening hemorrhage and there was no way that we could stop the bleeding out on the sidewalk. Uh, so I deployed this technique where you make one fist, you put it basically under the xiphoid, you press down with all your weight with your second hand to pinch the abdominal aorta between your fist and the vertebral column posteriorly. And we're able to stop his life-threatening hemorrhage and he was able to regain consciousness and we're able to temporize the bleeding long enough to get him to uh, an operating room and uh, he did not survive his injuries ultimately but um, that was sort of my first sort of foray uh, working with Dr. Brinley he helped me understand how we could take an interesting clinical case like this and then we designed a small program of research around studying this technique external aortic compression for life-threatening hemorrhage. And that was sort of my first foray. From there, I was able to transition to cardiac arrest care. I, I was more interested in cardiac arrest care than I was in trauma care. Uh, so as my studies progressed, I was teaching BLS and ACLS, like, you know, many resuscitation science-oriented people are. And I was using the videos um, that are supplied by Heart and Stroke Canada, the American Heart Association, and the other resuscitation uh, science organizations. And they're either actors or they were using uh, like, like first or second generation uh, computer generated people and images that kind of looked a little bit funny and not super realistic, I thought. So, you know, I guess being people of our age, you know, I kind of I watched the development of YouTube. I watched the development of like uh, open source uh, or freely accessible uh, video distribution platforms. So I did what any person would do. I started searching for uh, cardiac arrest videos online and I found lots. We found hundreds of cardiac arrest videos online. And so when you say cardiac arrest videos, do you mean cardiac arrest training videos or actual videos of cardiac arrests occurring in the out-of-hospital setting. Oh, excellent point. Yeah, excellent point. No, I went looking for actual uh, spontaneous, or pardon me, sudden cardiac arrests in the out-of-hospital setting. People who were, who were being captured by video, whether it was security, closed-circuit TV, uh, television broadcast. And at this time, like, you know, even five, six, seven, eight years ago, there was even less cameras out in public, but there were very many cardiac arrests were occurring. It could be someone running to their gate in an airport and airports are heavily surveilled settings. 
And if they have a sudden cardiac arrest, they collapse and you can watch what the prodrome to the cardiac arrest looks like, what sort of physical characteristics a person portrays prior to their collapse. And then you can see what the initial bystander reactions are and then how they initiate um, activating the emergency response system. You can see the early chains of survival actually occur in real time. And I started using them for teaching first because some of the there's some important barriers to responding to cardiac arrest, and they can be seizure, agonal breathing, or even, you know, we think there are some important sex and race related differences um, in cardiac arrest response. So I felt that these videos allow us to see these things in real time. As a resuscitation scientist, when I first saw the work you were doing, I just thought it was so brilliant because one of the biggest problems with studying out of hospital cardiac arrest, or as it's known, sudden cardiac arrest is that it's by definition sudden. So there's no way to know who's going to have one where or when, which makes it incredibly difficult to study how bystanders will respond. And so you being able to put together that you could potentially use closed caption television videos to study what is going on both with bystanders and the sudden cardiac arrest victims using those videos. I just thought it was one of the more original and interesting things that was going on in resuscitation science research. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. It was, it was a really, I still, yeah, it's a very, it's a valuable data source. It is very rich and it uh, allowed me to go to my first ever international conference. And that was, that was really empowering as a young investigator, someone not sure of the data source or the analysis methods. It was super validating. An interesting next step, I think, is that the more that I sort of presented that uh, a data source and our early interpretations of it, uh, both locally and, and then internationally, I came across um, survivors and cardiac arrest survivors and the family members of survivors and cardiac arrest non-survivors. And I talked to them about the videos and the videos being captured. And we always knew, I always knew that this was a slippery slope or it was a dangerous realm, I think, ethically and morally to use videos that capture one of the most vulnerable times in someone's life. And just because the videos were available in the public domain, we were able to obtain an, an IRB or, or an ethics bypass because the videos were freely available. So as researchers, we could, we could study them. Uh, we could download them and study them. But speaking to survivors and families, uh, you know, I was struck how they had such, and rightfully so, I think they had such strong feelings about these moments being captured on video. And that sort of paused the work that I did on the analysis uh, for a couple of years. And life got in the way. I, uh, yeah, I got sick for a while, and then I had kids, and they got in the way. And only in the last couple of years have I returned to this data source. Um, and I've interviewed, I did I never did a lot of qualitative work, but I have started now and I've been interviewing either cardiac arrest survivors who have had their videos captured online or had videos of their cardiac arrest captured and then shared online without their consent or permission. 
some other survivors who did consent to their video being distributed and then a bunch of family members um, of people who have videos online of cardiac arrest to try to explore the ethical implications of using these videos for educational and research purposes. So that uh, line of research hasn't stopped. It just took a, took a hiatus. Well, and I think it's taken an interesting direction because you, you bring up the great point that the, the ethics of it, and just because these videos are available online does not necessarily mean the patient or family gave approval for that. And so, you know, what does that mean in the, you know, social media open access world that we all live in where everybody has a camera and thinks they can video whomever they want and whatever they want and then post it? What does that mean for researchers and educators who are trying to understand these, you know, sudden cardiac arrest events or other um, really difficult to capture events for hopefully for good to, again, help educate and learn more. So I think it's really interesting. Is that the work that you're doing for your PhD? It's part of it. So what I decided uh, I would do, relying on my role as an emergency nurse, I felt that I was often the liaison between the resuscitation team and the family. I would be sort of a nurse lead in the room and a liaison and had many interactions with families. And I, I felt like there was often more that we could do where I didn't really understand. I felt that they were uh, really great BLS and uh, advanced cardiac life support, basic life support algorithms about how we should organize and prioritize care. And I really liked the, you know, and advanced cardiac life support, the H's and T's, these reversible causes. And I wanted something else that could empower nurses like myself in our interactions with families. What should we give them or what would families want in that scenario? If they're having one of the worst days of their lives, how can I go about meeting their care needs? Basically asking the question, what are their care needs and how to meet them? Uh, I combined that with a priority setting exercise that was done in 2019 that put resuscitation scientists, the members of the public, researchers together in, in a process to determine what are the most important research questions in resuscitation science. And lo and behold, number five in a list of 10 prioritized questions was, what are the care needs of families experiencing cardiac arrest? So that kind of fell onto my lap. And I asked the, uh, the awesome researcher and great person, uh, Dr. Katie Dainty, uh, who led the priority center exercise, if, if I may have question number five for my PhD. And uh, she agreed, I could. So that is the, the driving question. What are the care needs of families experiencing cardiac arrest of a loved one? I am a huge Dr. Katie Dainty fan. So I love that you all are working on that. What's your timeline for getting done your PhD? Oh, the, uh, the pandemic uh, resulted in my having some of the hardest months of my career. We had an opioid toxicity crisis here in Western Canada as well. So the opioid crisis was hard hitting. The pandemic was pretty, was hard hitting. It was hard. It pulled me away from my PhD for, you know, basically the duration of the pandemic. I wasn't getting any work done. Uh, and for our fourth wave here in Western Canada, I was actually redeployed 
from my role as a nurse educator to the bedside in the ICU, which was good. I was glad that I was able to help, uh, but I didn't want to go back full time. It was quite impactful for my family having me sort of back to shift work and losing a bit of control that way. So I am jumping back in with, uh, with two feet and I am going to try very hard to be done in the next two years. I've been fortunate to be able to uh, design and publish a scoping review attempting to answer the questions. What are the care needs of families experiencing cardiac arrest? And I've done it with an amazing team of cardiac arrest survivors and family members who designed the scoping review, uh, performed uh, article screening, did data extraction, uh, and helped write and publish the manuscript. And I'm going to keep working with uh, folks with lived experience throughout the rest of my PhD as we do a systematic review of metasynthesis, and as we develop tools uh, that will help meet the needs of, of families. Well, I think that's incredible. I definitely do not think it's been acknowledged enough how hard this pandemic has been on students, especially students like yourself who have a family are also working and trying to, you know, get the research and dissertation work done. And so I totally commend you with taking the time you need to be redeployed and deal with the pandemic, but then also coming back and sort of trudging forward. I'm also in the PhD program and it was not an easy time for any of it. So, um, yeah. Strong work, Matt. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I, I feel think, your uh, pain. <laughs> after eight years of being a, a clinical nurse educator in an emergency department, that is a huge part of my identity. I, uh, I resigned my position. The way that the contract for nurses works here is that in an emergency, which the pandemic truly is, our employer can redeploy us to areas where there's the greatest need. And I believe in that provision of the contract, it makes sense to me. This is an awfully long emergency. That is, that was really becoming an emergency for me at home and in my personal life. And I made a really difficult decision that was to resign my position and leave my role. And now I work casually at the bedside while I really focus on um, the research. Cause I think that that, that might be, you know, a better, a better contribution that I can make while still maintaining my own wellness and the wellness of my family. Well, and I think this just goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, acknowledging what we need to be successful. And you acknowledged you needed to not be in that role, to take a different role and to focus on your research and your family. And I think that is just an incredible thing to be able to to do. So I hope that it works out for you and your family. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. So Matt, anything else you'd like to discuss before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, you've, you've given me the opportunity to reflect on a little bit of my journey and the things that I'm sort of most proud of or my most important learnings to share would be, I think, meeting nurses like yourself, people who are, can demonstrate a bit of courage and creativity within nursing. That's what keeps me in the profession. I like where we're situated in the healthcare system. I like our proximity to both um, patients, other providers. Um, 
And I love that we're positioned in, in a way where we can innovate in really impactful ways. And we can answer questions that are most important to both to our patients and to ourselves as healthcare providers. And uh, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to speak about that and to share that message with uh, like-minded nurses such as yourself, Marion. Well, thanks, Matt. This was an incredibly inspiring conversation. I really enjoyed learning more about you and about your path and I really look forward to reading all about your resuscitation work um, as you move forward. Good luck with the dissertation. I hope we can work together in the future. Thank you. I wish you the very same, and I do look forward to working together again. Hello, Marian. Hello, Angela. How's it going? It's amazing. How are you? I am so good. I absolutely love talking to my colleague, Matt, who I used to do a lot of resuscitation science work with um, many years ago. And so it was really nice to be able to talk to him about his life and the work that he was doing and is doing now, and just to really hear more about him. Yeah. I also enjoyed the conversation. I feel like he's doing some really, really interesting things some of the ethical questions behind things that we're posting online, specifically related to resuscitation, about how his whole trajectory into research, how he was not at all encouraged by our nursing colleagues and had to branch out into other places in order to get the encouragement and support he needed to become a researcher. So I I find that story really, really interesting. Yeah, he made me think a lot, and I hope he makes our listeners think a lot about a number of things, about what you said in terms of the profession and not being supported. And it made me think about how there are institutions that are just highly focused on providing students with optimal clinical skills and getting them out in the workforce. And that's okay. And that's why there are other research institutions. And I feel bad that Matt did not get the support he needed from his nursing colleagues, but was able to find that somewhere else and has become a very successful and innovative researcher. But also made me think about not everybody learns the same. And we talked about this in the interview. Like mm-hmm. He needed so much more support and different outlets to be able to focus and to study and take in the information he was learning in nursing school in different ways. And everybody learns differently. And I hope our nursing education colleagues hear this and understand that, you know, we need to provide students the opportunities and outlets they need to make them more successful and a full, more rounded individual. I think it's really important that as a profession, we look at these weak points, education, mentorship, things like that, in order to improve the profession as a whole and the providers that are coming up. That is a great point. I mean, there's so many, like I said, so many things that came out of this discussion with Matt that had me thinking, and those were definitely the highlights. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa Donato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. 
with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can do us a solid, please rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.